Well, there are certain points in all of our lives when we face a major challenge in front of us. It might be starting the course of study at school and entering a new school, as I know some of the children among us will enter a new school even this fall. Maybe it's graduation from a school. Right? You've been going to school for X number of years and you're graduating and thinking then about your future ahead of you. Perhaps it is that new job that you're getting from the schooling that you just had. Maybe it's a marriage. As you think about you know, the days and months right before you're being married, you're getting married, it's a major challenge that's in front of you. Perhaps the birth of a first child. It's a major challenge, a major responsibility that comes in your life. Maybe it's a move to a new house. Maybe it's venturing off into some new skill or doing some kind of challenge that's in front of you. And in such times, we have arranged society such that there are many people who will give you some final advice and counsel right before you enter those times. I mean, I think about graduation ceremonies. We often have a speaker who will give charge to those who are graduating to give them their final advice as they leave the academic institution for the world. Or perhaps at rehearsal dinners before marriage. Right? Oftentimes parents, parents will raise a toast and give final advice to their children in the hearing of all. Maybe before a football game, a coach is going to give his final advice to his, field, to his team before they take the field. Or perhaps... Uh, but before a battalion goes into war, the, the commander of that group of army tells the soldiers of, of what it is, the key things that they need to remember before they go out and fight in the battle. Well, this morning as we come to the book of Deuteronomy, we see Moses giving his final advice to the people of Israel as they are ready to embark and to go out and conquer the land. In another month, Moses will die on the top of Mount Nebo, overlooking the land, but being prohibited to enter the land himself. And the nation of Israel would soon come and take the land by force under the leadership of Joshua, rather the leadership of Moses. But Moses, as he loved the people of Israel and prayed for them often before God, even when they were obstinate and rebellious, he wanted to do all that he could do to prepare them for the day when they entered the land. And so he addressed the people with a series of sermons that were focused upon preparing them for entering the land. Really had two focuses. One was how to enter. Right? When they were coming in, they'd face these big nations in battle. And he would say, listen, trust in the Lord. Remember everything he's done for you and trust in the Lord. And then Moses also gives advice once they're in the land. And they're eating the, the good of the land and the, the fat of the trees and are enjoying themselves in wealth and prosperity. He wants to teach them of how to live once the battle is over and once they're there. And the reason why he's giving them this final advice is because the generation before them had made some incredible mistakes. They had sinned greatly. They'd rebelled against the Lord, refused to believe Him, involved in idolatry and immorality, and they were grumblers constantly, ungrateful for all the things that the Lord had done. And it was a desire of Moses to set this next generation upon the good path that they might not repeat the history of the previous generation because that generation was a disaster. And so like any good coach, like any good teacher, like any good parent, like any good commencement speaker, Moses has his final advice to these people of Israel. To open up for you the first half of the book of Deuteronomy where we've come in our exposition through the whole Bible this year, I invite you to open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 4, Verse 9. I'm going to use this verse from which to launch and then try to illustrate from the rest of the first half of Deuteronomy how these things are constant themes here in the book of Deuteronomy. And indeed they are. Deuteronomy 4, verse 9. Let me read it for you. It says this, Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. But make them known to your sons and to your grandsons. This one verse really helps open up what Deuteronomy is about. There are five exhortations in this verse. Five exhortations. I hope that you can see them there. The first one comes here when he says, Give heed to yourself. 
The second one comes a little later. He says, keep your soul diligently. The third one, the third exhortation command says, do not forget the things that your eyes have seen. The fourth one, don't forget that they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. And exhortation number five, make them known to your sons and your grandsons. Five exhortations. My message will have five points. One point corresponding to each of these exhortations. And let me simply say at the beginning, these exhortations are every bit as applicable for us today as they were to the Israelites in the day of Moses. Oh, we may not be preparing to enter the promised land, but there is a land to which we desire to enter, right? The glories of heaven. And so there is a destination that we have set our hearts upon achieving and obtaining. And there are ways that we ought to be living right now so as to obtain that final day, reaching towards the prize, as Paul said. Or maybe even in your life, there is a particular struggle that you're struggling with in your journey. Maybe it's different for us all. That this counsel and this advice will be helpful to you. Oh, we won't be fighting the Hittite and the Girgashite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, as Gordy mentioned. But the final advice that Moses gave gives tremendous help for you in whatever spiritual battle you are facing this morning. So whatever your battle is, I guarantee you the counsel of Moses here in Deuteronomy 4 verse 9 will help you. By parallel, as the people of Israel were preparing to enter in the promised land, he gives them a heart and a mind and tells them how to focus, so also for you, for your struggles of your life that face you today. Well, let's look at the first point. Simply this, give heed to yourself. It's exactly what verse 9 says. Only give heed to yourself. With these words, Moses is simply saying you need to pay attention to your lives. As we live our lives upon the earth, there are dangers that we will encounter along the way. And we need to navigate through them carefully. And our lives need to be lived with diligence and great care. And to illustrate this point, I want to take you out of Deuteronomy to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So I want you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. <clears throat> in recent weeks, I've made passing comments about these verses, but today I'd like to look a little bit more intently at the first 13 verses of 1 Corinthians 10 because it, it instructs us, based upon the past of what Israel did, that we need to take heed to our lives. I looked there in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 10. Moses said, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. These verses are addressing a situation, perhaps you remember, when Israel was wandering in the wilderness. Verse 1 takes us back to the time in which Israel was taken out of Egypt. They stood fearing with their backs to the Red Sea and, and the Egyptian army coming on. And what did they do? God parted the sea and all of Israel, right, walked past through the sea. We're talking about the, the, effort, the reference there in Numbers, the reference to the cloud, refers to how they followed the cloud in the wilderness. When the cloud departed, they just followed it. And so all the people of Israel passed through the sea and followed the cloud. Verse 2 says they're all baptized into Moses. Speaking about how they were united to God through Moses, their leader. All of them were following him. Verse 3 and 4 speak about how they were sustained in the wilderness. We know that they were sustained by eating manna and drinking water. But there was something else that was sustaining them as well. There was a, a spiritual drink and a spiritual rock that was following them. That was Christ Jesus himself. And the punchline comes then in verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. With most of them. That's like drastic overstatement. Or understatement, I guess. With most of them. You should probably read that with all but two of them. God was not well pleased. Right? Joshua and Caleb were the only ones who survived the wandering in the wilderness. The rest of them died. That's what it means that they were laid low, verse 5, in the wilderness. And then verse 6 brings the application to us. These things happened as examples to us that we should not crave evil things as they also crave. Now, over the past two weeks, we've been in numbers. I have sought to drive this home and drive this home and drive this home. You remember the pivotal chapter in, in Numbers chapter 13 and 14 with Cadus Barnea when they went in to, to spy out the land and it, it wasn't good enough for them. At that point, God said, these ten times you've rebelled against me. And so my sermon two weeks ago had ten points 
of rebellion. And then last week, even after that, they continued to rebel against the Lord ten more times. I've been trying to drive home again and again and again the negative example of how they lived and how we ought not to live. We ought not to crave evil things as they crave. And then he goes on in verse 7. Verse 7, Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. That's a direct quote from Exodus chapter 32, verse 6, which describes the actions of the people shortly after they made the golden calf to worship. After they made the golden calf, it was party time! We've got our God! Everything's okay! We sit down and we play. And they're worshiping a false god. Verse 8 says this, Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. That was the immorality that was recorded for us in Numbers 25, right? When the people of Israel played the harlot with the daughters of Moab. They worshipped their gods. They acted immorally with their women. And 23,000 died in one day. 24,000 died overall in the plague. Verse 9 is referring to the occasion in which the people of Israel became impatient against God and Moses, right? Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, right? We read in Numbers 21 verse 6 about how the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people. So they had to look to the brazen serpent to be healed. Verse 9 again refer, verse 10 rather refers again to the people in Israel, probably referring to the time in which the people of Israel grumbled against the Lord. God sent a plague and killed 14,700 of them. Right? Nor grumble, verse 10, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And the lesson comes in verse 11, right? These things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. Right? In other words, the profitability of the account of the wanderings in wilderness is the example that it leaves. <clears throat> in fact, you almost get a sense here from what Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians 10 that God specifically cause these people to be such a bad example so that they might be a bad example for us is almost the sense that you get they're an example for us they were an immoral idolatrous complainers laid low in the wilderness God killed many of them for their grumblings and similarly God will be displeased with us should we engage in similar activities now you might be thinking to yourself at this point Steve come on we're in the 21st century I mean their dangers aren't our dangers we're not I've never seen anybody worship a golden calf. My marriage is secure. I'm not going to fall into immorality. I've never seen God's plague strike thousands of people before. This is different from us. And if that's how you're thinking, verse 12 comes strong and hard to you. Look what verse 12 says. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall this, by the way, is the exact point that Moses made. Moses said, give heed to yourself. Paul said in verse 12, take heed. It's the same thing. It means the same thing. It means pay attention. Wake up. The call is to be alert and active, right? Understand what's taking place. You might not drift into sin as the previous generation did, right? And the warning is this. If you think you're immune to any of these dangers, you need to think again. Because you, in thinking yourself to be immune, are in special danger of falling into them. You need to take heed to yourself. In church family, I simply say this. We need to take the wickedness of the generation of Moses' day into account. We may fall just as they did because their temptations are our temptations. Right? Verse 13. Right? No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to men. Their experiences weren't unique. Their experiences were our experiences. Oh, we may not be wandering around in a dry, hot wilderness. We may not be tempted to bow down before a golden calf and worship it. But, verse 6, we are tempted to crave evil things. You know that? Any of you tempted to crave evil things? I know I am. The pull of the flesh in our own pleasures is alive and well in each one of us. Verse 7 speaks about that. right? Enjoying our passing pleasures of sin rather than God. The temptation to immorality is all around us. You just need to look at the billboards and the televisions and the internet. It's all there. That's what verse 8 is talking about. Verse 9, how easy is it for us to try the patience of the Lord with repeated unrepentant sin in our hearts? And none of us are free from the sin of grumbling, as verse 10 says. 
And the sins of, gener- of the generation of Moses' day are the sins of the generation of our day. Not much has changed. The human passions are still the human passions. But there's hope at the end of verse 13. It says that God is faithful. Oh, there's our hope. Is that God is faithful. It says He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you will be able to endure it. So when you're craving evil things, verse 6, know that God is providing for you the exit sign to say, this is the way out. And when you're pulled to take pleasure in the things of the world, God has an escape route for you. And when immoral thoughts come into your mind and you're contemplating one of your common sins and you find yourself downhearted wanting to grumble, God has provided a way of escape. And the way of escape, amazingly, is always the same. Always the cross of Christ. Not some special escape here and some special escape there. It is the cross of Christ. When tempted, what we ought to do is we ought to look at Him who canceled the certificate of debt that was hostile to us. We ought to look to Him who has taken our sin out of the way. Right? We ought to realize that when we look to Christ, He's transformed us and made us alive. We're no longer a slave to sin. We're free to do righteousness. And the grace of Christ is what works into us. We need to look to Him for strength and help. Well, that's the first exhortation, to give heed to yourself. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 4. We're going to look at the second exhortation this morning. It's almost just like the first. I thought about combining these into one point, but I thought, you know what, there are five exhortations here. I want to have five points, so we're just going to get more of the same. Deuteronomy 4, he says, only give heed to yourself. And then here's the second one. Keep your soul diligently. The first one had a focus on self. This one has a focus on your soul. Keep your soul diligently. And I just say, this is great advice that Moses had for the people of Israel. They stand on the precipice of the promised land. The generation before them had failed to keep their souls. Rather than keeping their heart focused upon the Lord, they allowed the issues of the day to run their passions. When in danger, they grumbled. When thirsty, they grumbled. When hungry, they grumbled. When tempted, they fell to immorality and idolatry. As a result of their sin, they wandered for 40 years and were destroyed in the wilderness. They failed to keep their souls. And Moses is saying, hey, learn from the generation gone by. They didn't keep their souls. You need to keep your souls. And it's of utmost importance, church family, to pay attention to your soul. Moses said that you should be diligent about this task, right? Look what he says there in verse 9. Keep your soul diligently. I'm just simply saying it. Pay attention to your soul. Diligently. Be active in your pursuit. Be attentive, right? Be occupied with the cultivation of your soul. Guard it. Watch over it. Keep it. And you know what? It all begins by how valuable we see our souls. If we see our souls as high and valued and lifted up, we will guard them and protect them. But if we see them as very little, then we won't, right? Don't we naturally treasure those things that are valuable? I mean, those things that we consider to be of little value, we easily part with. But those things that are of much value, we keep and we treasure and we guard. A piece of paper we'll crumple up and throw away. Unless that piece of paper is a dollar bill. Then we'll keep that. Always looking and always seeing just what is valuable. We do that all the time, right? A good illustration of this took place in our home this past week, right? Carissa, you have one? Carissa went to uh, Tahiti last summer with uh, mom and with grandma. And uh, when she was in Tahiti, Tahiti's known for their black pearls. And so she purchased a couple black pearls, how many, three? One for a necklace, and then two that were mounted upon earring studs like this. And uh, this is very precious and very special because when she wears this, it's not particularly expensive, but when she wears it, it reminds her of the wonderful trip that mom and grandma took with her. Now, you know what happened this week? She lost her earring. It was gone. And she didn't know where it was. And it was pretty distressing, wasn't it, Krista? And it it taught me that, you know what, Krista values this black pearl earring a lot. And she was looking around with her flashlight and diligently looking for her lost earring. And she eventually found it by her school desk, so that was time of rejoicing. And how do you think that she responded when she found it? (laughs) I got my earring. And it was happy and delight. Why? Because she valued her earring. 
And I will tell your church family that your most valuable possession is not an earring. Your most valuable possession is your soul. Jesus said it this way. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What's the answer to that question? Nothing. Nothing. I mean, fathom this, right? Should you be in a position that you own the whole earth? And should you be in a position that you rule over the whole earth? And should you be in a position that everybody upon the earth is your slave and whatever you want is said and done? Would that be good? But if you own the whole earth, ruled the whole earth and lost your soul, terrible, awful. What Jesus says, what does it profit you? It profits you nothing. There is no profit in gaining the whole world at the expense of your soul. And so you need to realize that your most valued possession that you have is your soul. And do you know why it's your most valued possession? Because it's the only thing you have that's eternal. Your clothes that you're wearing today will wear out. Someday be replaced. Or you'll grow out of them. Your car will find its way into a junk heap someplace. Your house someday will either fall down or burn up. But your soul will never die, will live forever. And your ultimate destination where you spend eternity is based upon the state of your soul. You either spend it in the glories of heaven or you'll spend it in the torments of hell. And Jesus put it all in perspective when he said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Sadly, there are many who go around today not carrying anything of their soul. They think that things of the world are more important than their soul. They think that getting their own way is more important than their soul. But there will be a day... It's all made clear to them, but that will be a day too late. Today is a day of repentance, right? Today is a day you need to say, I'm trusting in Christ for my soul for eternity. And I exhort you as Moses did, keep your soul, right? Pay attention to your soul. Pay attention to your attitudes, your perspectives, your thoughts, your inner man, because as Proverbs 4.23 says, that from the heart flow the issues of life. From the inner man flow the issues of life. And you know what the proverb says? Watch over your heart with all diligence. Just like what Moses said. Guard your soul with all diligence. Keep your soul. You know, one of the biggest temptations that will come upon your soul and mine is the pull of the world. Look over at Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 10. Here these themes come again and again, right? Verse 10. It shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. Then watch yourself. Keep your soul that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out from the land of Egypt. And out of the house of slavery, you shall fear only the Lord your God. You shall worship him and swear by his name. You know what? When things are going well for you, it's a time where you're in great danger of your soul. Because in prosperity and ease, it is easy to forget the Lord. How easy is it for us to say with Nebuchadnezzar, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built, the glory of my majesty? How easy is it for us to say, oh, look at all these things that I have. I've amassed this wealth. I've amassed this stock portfolio. I have this house. I have this wonderful car. I have this... Pride goes before destruction. And when you come into the land and when you are prosperous, take heed because that's when you may fall. The things of the world have a way of tugging at our souls. And the things of the world are saying, trust me. Trust me. Pursue me. Boast in me. I'm your vineyard, right? I'm your olive tree. I'm your bank account. But how easily we can forget God. And I simply say, church family, pay attention to your soul. Well, third, final advice. Turn back to Deuteronomy 4, verse 9. Moses told the Israelites, Do not forget the things that your eye have seen. Now, their eyes had seen wonderful things that the Lord had done for them. And their eyes had seen some terrible things that they had done. And both these things were important for them to remember. Remember the good that the Lord has done and remember the wickedness that the generation gone by has done. And you saw what God did. 
And so remember that, right? So go back to chapter 1. I want to take us through the first three chapters here real fast. In verse 8, God says, See, I have placed the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, and to their descendants after them. There they are, 400 years after the promise, to Abraham, right? The promise was of a land. The promise was of a great nation, and the promise was of a blessing. And there they were on the precipice about to get the land because of the promise that was given to Abraham. And Moses reminded the people of how indeed God had made them a great nation, right? Look at verse 10. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are this day like the stars of heaven in number. Maybe you remember in Genesis chapter 15 when God took Abraham out and says, Abraham, look at the stars of the sky. Can you count them? So many will your descendants be. And he's 100 years old, and his wife is 90. And that took place. Exactly what this says. And God blessed them numerically. They were a blessing, and they were right on the precipice of the land. All these great things that God had done for them. Unfortunately, when the spies went in to spy the land, they came back and weren't willing to take the land. And verse 26 then speaks about the bad that was done. You were not willing to go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord. And you grumbled in your tents and said, Because the Lord hates us, He brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Again, they pulled that trump card of Egypt out. They said, Oh, God hates us. And we're going to be destroyed. Woe is us. When God heard their grumbling, He was angry with their words. He said in verse 35, Not one of these men, this evil generation, shall see the good land which I swore to their fathers. Only Caleb and Joshua would come into the land. Only Caleb and Joshua are the two shining lights. And the story of the people of Israel was placed on hold for these 40 years. But over in chapter 2, verse 16, when those people finally perished from among the people, God said, okay, let's get on our move. That generation is done. Let's get on the move. Maybe you've learned something. Let's go in and take the land. And in chapter 2, we read of the defeat of Sihon, king of Heshbon. Right? Look at verse 33. Starting in verse 32 of chapter 2. Then Sihon with all his people came out to meet us in battle at Jahaz. And the Lord our God delivered him over to us. And we defeated him with his sons and all his people. And there you see Sihon being defeated. But who defeated Sihon? It was the Lord who defeated Sihon. This is a great thing that the Lord had done. And also Og, king of Bashan, comes in chapter 3, verse 3. So the Lord our God delivered Og, also the king of Bashan, with his people into our hand. And we smote them until no survivor was left, right? And who destroyed them? It was the Lord that saw to it. Wonderful things the Lord had done. And when Moses began to see the strong hand, these are conquests, by the way, before they're getting into the promised land. I mean, we often think that Jericho is the first time which they came in, they conquered the city of Jericho. But they, they conquered Sihon, and then they conquered Og, king of Bashan, and they were right ready to enter into the land. And Moses began to see of the great power and wonderful wonders of God. And he said in chapter 3, verse 23, I also pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you've begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand for what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours. And then in verse 25, he asked permission to go across and God said, no, I'm not pleased with you because you didn't treat me as holy. But Moses, verse 24, was aware of the strong hand of the Lord. He knew very well the mighty acts of God. And that was exactly the point of Moses. He says, don't forget the things that you've seen. You've seen how faithful the Lord your God has been. You've seen how unfaithful the initial generation had left. Egypt was. So be faithful. I think a, a good application might come to your parents here. Perhaps, you know, some things in your past that you've failed on. That, uh, you know, you grew up in a, in a way, a different way than you're raising your children right now. And you, you want your children not to be like you were because of the blessing now. And, and you say, today is different, dear children. Right? Because this is how I grew up. But I've seen the cross of Christ and my life has changed. And we're doing different things as a family, right? I remember the things that I saw. And you guys need to know what I was like and how God has transformed me as well. So you speak with them of how different your home is. And you say, don't miss the blessing. That's what Moses is saying. Look back to what God has done. And don't miss the blessing, right? Look at those wonderful things. We can look at chapter 4. Verses 32 through 40 go again and again and again and again of the wonderful power of God, right? Verse 32, 
Indeed, now ask concerning the former days which were before you since the day that God created man on earth and inquire from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything been done like this great thing or has anything been heard like it? Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of a fire as you heard it and survived? Or has it God tried to take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs and wonders, by war and by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm and by great terrors as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt? Here it is before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that he's the Lord, he's God. There's no other one beside him. And it goes on and on to speak about just how great he is. Or in chapter 11, it says a similar thing. He says, remember... Chapter 11, verse 1, You shall therefore love the Lord your God and always keep His charge, His statutes, His ordinances and commandments. Know this day, I'm not speaking with your sons who have not known and who have not seen the discipline of the Lord, His greatness, His mighty hand, His outstretched arms, His signs and His works, which He did in the midst of Egypt to Pharaoh, the king in Egypt, to all his land. And what He did to Egypt's army and its horses and its chariots when He made the water of the Red Sea to engulf them while they are pursuing you. And the Lord completely destroyed them. And what he did to you in the sons of Eliab, the son of Reuben, when the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them, their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them among all Israel. Here it is. But your own eyes have seen the great work which the Lord has done. And Moses is simply saying, listen, the things you've seen of God, don't forget. Don't. And the reason for that is that when... When you see the mighty acts of God, it has a way of changing your perspective on the future. Right? And the application comes straight to us. We may not have seen the mighty hand of the Lord as the Israelites did, but we sure can read about it. And we sure can believe it. And we can live faithfully into our Lord. And so I bring it to you, church family. Never forget what the Lord has done for your soul. These Israelites were called to look back at Egypt, what took place, but we're called to look at the great power of God in our salvation. In 1 Corinthians 1, it speaks about how the message of a crucified Savior is the power of God for those who believe. So we need to constantly remember, well, what power do we have? What power have we seen? We've seen God transform our lives. That's the power that we have seen of God. And you ought never forget that you have seen God work in your life. Well, my fourth point. Give heed to yourself. Pay attention to your soul. Don't forget what you saw. And point number four, don't depart with your heart. Or don't let these things depart from your heart. And again, point number three and point number four are much the same. I thought about clumping them together, but I said, you know what? Let's spend some more time on this. Don't let them depart from your heart. So it says in chapter 4, verse 9, and throughout the book of Deuteronomy, right? Moses is continually advising the people, remember what God has done. Remember what He's done. It'll give you courage to enter the land. And once you're in the land, it's going to give you perspective while you're there. Right? Turn over to chapter 7. And again, I'm just trying to illustrate these things throughout Deuteronomy. You read the first half of Deuteronomy and these things come again and again and again. Verse 17, Deuteronomy 7. If you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them. You shall well remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to Egypt, the great trials which your eyes saw. And the signs and the wonders and the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Right? When fear comes upon you and you're looking at this great and powerful nation, especially the sons of Anak, and they're so large and so powerful. Think, people of Israel, back to when you were delivered from Egypt. The plagues were powerful. And the splitting of the Red Sea defies any other explanation but that the Lord is a mighty God. He's on your side and you can conquer the land. The power of the people is nothing in the hand of God. You need to be convinced of that. You know, I had a great illustration this past week. Uh, my wife told me of a dream that she had. And uh, she, was, she was dreaming this dream. And, you know, maybe it's not like the nations that were surrounding Israel, but she dreamed of these snarling wolves that were all around her and she was kind of trapped and, you know, all the, all the snarling wolves were around and, and she woke up and her heart was beating because she was fearful and she, her, she, she woke up, she kind of looked over and she heard... I was snoring because I always snore 
and I've inflicted. She wears an earplug when she sleeps, so the snarling wolves won't get to her. But she was really scared. Her heart was beating. She was afraid of her husband snoring. Here's a command to remember. Remember what the Lord has done. But it goes even beyond the battle. After the battle is won, when you're in the land, you need to remember just what God has done and why He's done it and take it to heart. Look over chapter 8. I want to read here, beginning in verse 11. Beware, do not forget the Lord your God by keeping His commandments and His ordinances and His statutes which I'm commanding you today. Otherwise, when you've eaten and are satisfied, have built houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold multiply, and all that you have multiplies, God is blessing you abundantly. Don't forget the Lord because your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Verse 15. He led you out through great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of flint. In the wilderness, He fed you with manna which your fathers did not know that He might humble you, He might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, if you forget the Lord, verse 17 is going to say, My power... And the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But the exhortation comes, Remember the Lord your God, for it's He who is giving, is giving you the power to make wealth, and it, that He may confirm His covenant which He swore to the fathers as it is this day. When God prospers you and blesses you and makes your way great and numerous, don't forget that it was God who brought it to pass. The warning comes in verse 19. It shall come if you ever forget the Lord your God to go after other gods and serve them or worship them. I testify against you that you will surely perish. Like the nations the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. Oh, how important it is, is it for us to remember. We need to remember what God has done for us that we might presume upon nothing. Right? Let's get it into our hearts that we always remember. I just simply say, how easy is it for us to look at our own accomplishments and boast ourselves up and think that we have done it? I speak from experience here. How easy is it for me in my mind to boast about all the Lord has done? Because I've done it. That's so wrong. It's God has done it. And I thank the Lord for humbling me in recent days. Because He has immensely. And here when Israel conquered the land, they were in great need of seeing that it wasn't their merits that brought them into land. Rather, it was the working of God, right? Look at chapter 9. This is a great, this is a great section here. It says, Do not say in your hearts, verse 4, When the Lord your God has driven them out from before you, because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it's because of the wickedness of the nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. Look at verse 5. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you're going to possess the land, but it's because of the wickedness of the nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Know then, it's like the third time, it's not your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess it because, the truth be known, you're a stubborn people, right? Verse 7, Remember how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day that you were left the land of Egypt until you arrived this place. You have been a rebellious against the Lord. <laughs> when Israel would look back, the day in the land, they're satisfied and full. They might consider, hey, why is it that we arrived here in the first place? God was making it very clear. It's not your righteousness that brought you there. To be sure, the nations in the land of Canaan were wicked. But God didn't bring the people of Israel because they were righteous. God brought them in right, because of a promise that He swore. Because where the facts known in verse seven, 6, it says that they were stubborn people. In verse 7, it says that they were a, a rebellious people. But in verse 5, it says, it's, I brought you in to confirm the oath which you made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, the, the promise that God made some 430 years before. 
That's the reason why they're coming into the land. Because God is going to be faithful to them. Not because you're righteous, because you're wicked. And I wanted to destroy you because you're so bad. I want to start all over with Moses. But he didn't because of the oath that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But let me ask you this. Why did God make an oath with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Was it because those guys were righteous? Not at all. Not at all. Look over in chapter 7. Verse 7, the Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you are more in numbers than all the people. You are the fewest of all peoples. In fact, you were one. You were Abraham, a hundred-year-old guy. You weren't more than anybody else. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the love brought you out by a mighty hand, redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the house of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It wasn't because Abraham was so numerous. It's because God chose to love Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by the sheer freeness of God. God was free to choose whom he wanted to love, and he chose to love Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was in his sovereignty that he loved Israel. And it's no different for us. If you're a believer in Christ today, it's only because of God's choice of you. It's only because God, from the foundation of the world, chose to set his love upon you. Just like he chose Israel here. And I would say that that's your perspective. As you sit here in church, as you reflect upon your family and your children, as whatever well-behaved they are, as whatever spiritual nourishment's happening in the souls of your kids, whatever spiritual things you've accomplished, don't ever say, look, it's because of my righteousness, because it's not. Look and say, it's only because God chose to be gracious to me and open my eyes and bring me from death to life and show me the glories of Christ. That's why. It's God working in us, and we ought never to forget the working of God in our lives. Is that applicable for us today? It ought to be. It's a doctrine that humbles your souls, because it's all God. And that's what he's saying to Israel. When you come in, it's not your righteousness. It's because God chose to love you. That's why. Because of a sovereign election. Well, let's look at my last point this morning. Give heed to yourself, pay attention to your soul, don't forget what you saw, don't depart with your heart. And here it is, number five, make them known to your children. Look at chapter 4, verse 9, it says this, But make them known to your sons and to your grandsons. In other words, Paul's saying, pass it on. Here, here's the final advice Moses given to the people of Israel. He tells them all these things, right? Remember God. So you can live appropriately, keep your soul, watch your soul with all diligence, and make sure that you remind your sons and tell your sons of all the wondrous things that God has done. And I think Moses instructing the people of Israel to tell them to their children, because to do so will go well with their children in their land. Because Moses is trying to say, you know what, you want it to go well in your land? Then you do these things. And for your children, you want to go well with your children? Then, then tell them of the wondrous things of God. And so on and so on and so on through all the generation. <clears throat> and perhaps the most famous place in which Israel is told to pass on what they know comes in chapter 6. Why don't you turn over there? Chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding to you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals in your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on all your gates. Notice the order. I believe this is a divine order of things. It says it needs to be in your heart first. And then in your home. Verse 6. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. And once they're on your heart, that's when you teach them diligently to your sons. And should you miss the first, but try to get the second without the first, your kids will spot your hypocrisy a mile away. They'll see right through it. If you try to teach them without a heart of love to God, it's just not going to work. It needs to be your heart of love to God first. And then it flushes itself out in the home. And I just say this, should your faith be authentic and true, and should your love for God burn in your heart, 
it will express itself in your home. It will. Moses tells us to teach our children diligently, right? And that's what he's talking about here. When you sit, when you walk, when you lie down, and when you rise up, right? In other words, at all times, that's what he's saying, to teach your children. And the sense of these words, right, is it just that wherever you're going, whether you sit down for dinner, teaching your kids the commands of God, when you're driving through the city, teaching your kids the commands of God, when you tuck your children in bed at night, you're teaching your children. When you're awakening your children in the morning, so you're talking God's word should be the focus of our conversations. That's what it's talking about. The words which I'm commanding you today should be on your heart, right? And it's so on your heart that you're, you're just speaking it. And so I think about how informally this is. This isn't like, okay, child, let's have our Bible study now, all right? This is, this is what? It's when you're sitting down. Just kind of sitting casually. Maybe when you're sitting down watching the television or something. Maybe when you're sitting down just talking. It's just teaching them. This is when you're walking by the way, right? So be like the wise man who walks by the field of the sluggard and says, Hey, my son, you see that field over there? It's overgrown with weeds. You know what that means? That means that man's a sluggard and he's going to be in want someday. So you continue to walk along, right? And you spot somebody in sin and you say, You see that person? They're going to pay the fruit of their consequences, right? And you're walking along and you say, Oh, you see that church? Boy, that's a great church. And I saw some of the people who are there and they're really doing well. Or you read in the newspaper and you say, hey, son, look at this. This is, this is a great example of what it means to work out your Christianity. Just all the time, wherever you're going, whatever you're talking about. Be like the rabbi of the early centuries. When he took a pupil on himself, he didn't have a classroom and desk and chairs. He walked in and among society and just pointed out things and talked to them. Be like Socrates who asked penetrating questions to your children, trying to lead them to proper conclusions about God. Take all the opportunities you have and all the resources that are available to you. You know, I've spoken often of the importance of family worship, and I'll continue to say that. Just simply gathering your family together in your home to worship God. That's not the end in of itself, right? That's a means to create and cultivate these kind of things in your home. It's not the end-all, end-all. It's just one of many possible applications to promote discussion of God in your homes. Other possibilities are numerous. Perhaps praying together as a family. If you're going to talk about the Lord your God all the time in your homes, you're going to pray together as a family? You ought to. How about bringing up spiritual topics and talking about them intentionally? You say, you know what, we're, we're going to like maybe go through some kind of book and just say, well, this is a topic we're going to talk about and teach your children about that. Or maybe expose your children to good literature and, and tapes. One of the things that I've done in my home, and I'm not trying to lift myself up to say you've got to do this, but we have a, a tape deck or a CD deck by the bedside of all of our kids. And you know what? I disciple my kids every night between the moment that I kiss them to bed and the moment that they finally drift off into snarling wolf land. Okay? And there are different kinds of tapes. You know, different kinds of things, particularly for their wana. I've spoken a wana into tapes. Hi, SR, this is Dad, and we're going to go over our wana CD. Okay? Here's Discovery 1. Here's the verse. You know, and I say the verse, and I say what it is. I say, hey, you're going to learn that for a wana? Yeah, you're going to do that. You know, I might sing a song, yeah, and he listens to this tape. All of them listen to these tapes again and again. Why? Because I'm trying to disciple my kids every opportunity, every part of the day, every chance that I have. Some of our kids are getting old enough, and I'm starting to give them sermons. Starting to say, hey, you know what, here's a particular issue in your life you need to deal with. And so I give them a sermon. I say, hey, have you listened to this sermon? You know, they listen to the same sermon a couple nights because of God's Word trying to get into them. That's just a, an opportunity. Other things. Maybe you want to memorize Scripture together as a family. That'd be a great thing to do. I've, I've started to do that with SR, and we'll see how that goes. But just saying, you know what, SR, let's memorize this passage of Scripture together. Just to cultivate anything you can to talk about God's Word all the time. Maybe even displaying Bible verses. That's what Deuteronomy 6 says, right? Put them as a sign on your hand. Frontals on your foreheads. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates, right? We ought to have God's Word written up in our house. So we can see it. Maybe on your refrigerator. Maybe on your walls. Maybe a big mural. Something. Just put it there as a constant reminder. And I just say authentic religion ought to work itself out as you pass things through to the next generation. Just one last passage. It also occurs in Deuteronomy 11, verses 18 through 21. The same thing. 
You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul. And you shall bind them as a sign in your hand. They shall be as frontals in your forehead. You shall teach them to your sons, talking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So that, and here's the blessing, right? Your days and the days of your sons may be multiplied in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them. As long as heaven remains above the earth. I simply say this to your family. It will bring great blessing to you as you make God's word a conversation. And listen, let me say this also. With God's word, you also need not just to be teaching of it academically. You need to be modeling it as well in your home, right? The greatest way to destroy your children will be to hold them to a standard that you yourself are not following and expect them to reach there. And I've spoken with some families recently about cross-centered parenting. And I believe this is exactly what you need to do. You need, you need to hold the standard high, right? But you can't possibly reach that standard. So what do you need to do? When you fail in that standard, you need to be telling your kids, you know what, guys? I failed to love the Lord as I ought. And I've sinned against you. And you ought to be confessing your sins to your kids often and much. And say, you know what? I blew it. But I have hope in the cross. Because that's authentic. And that's what's going to bring them there. If you don't, confess and apologize to your kids it is the law of God coming and you know what the law does it exposes sin it creates hardness but when the law comes and you say listen kids I've failed as well and I stand before you only by the mercy and the grace of Christ that's going to make the difference because kids are going to see the reality of Christ in your life because that's where it is it's not that we're perfect but we're striving there it's the direction of our life it's not the perfection of our life Right? And it's Christ that's in us to completely sanctify us and purify us. That's what it means to have cross-centered parenting. And I encourage all of you to be doing that as well. Why don't you bow your heads? Once you notice, perhaps, think in your mind that this passage of Scripture even thinks about how it all starts with a love for God. It says in verse 5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And to try to push these commands on your children and to try to remember and to try to keep your soul diligently apart from a love to God, it's not going to work. And so I exhort you to really see the importance of your love to God. And if that is your heart's desire, if you do love Jesus Christ. Why don't you, with your head bowed, sing out this song that we know well, I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord, and I live.